Well, in the summer of 1965, the Beatles released one of their most famous hits. It charted number one in the United Kingdom, went on to chart number one in the United States. One of the few songs to chart number one in both countries. It's been the most, or one of the most, recorded songs of all time, being recorded over 2,200 times by various artists. A few of them, uh, Marvin Gaye, Merle Haggard, Ray Charles, Bob Dylan, Elvis Presley, Boys to Men, and the Ohio State Marching Band, to name a few. The BBC said it was the best pop song of the 20th century. And Rolling Stone said it was the best pop song of all time. Now, as you're rehearsing now Beatles hits in your mind, what are the ones that come to mind that have this kind of popularity? Ones that have said to be performed live over 7 million times is the estimate. Perhaps a song like Something. Or, or, or in my life, or some of the more poppy hits, like I want to hold your hand, or, or here comes the sun. Certainly great songs if you're a Beatles fan, and even if you're not, the type of song that you could imagine getting stuck in your head and getting played seven million times. But that's not the song that I'm referring to. The song that has gained so much notoriety and so much popularity was one written when Paul McCartney was at one of his lowest moments in life. A time where he was particularly troubled and sorrowful. Yesterday, all my troubles seemed so far away. Now it looks as though they're here to stay. Oh, I believe in yesterday. A song of of sadness, a song of lament, The lyricist in in anguish, holding out the glimmer of hope that life may one day return to the glory of yesterday. I think the popularity of this song tells us a little bit of something about the human experience. That, That we, at some point, every one of us experiences hard times, experiences trouble, experiences sorrow. Suffering, loneliness, betrayal, and is left to figure out some way to respond. Well, last night as I found out I was going to be preaching this morning and thinking of something to to share, I told my wife that I would be preaching from Psalm 13, and, and she reminded me I might want to remind people that I'm not lamenting the fact that Jesse's not here necessarily, though we certainly miss him. But more so bringing up a reality that though there's often much to rejoice in, there is, for many of us, all of us at times, much to be sorrow, sorrowful about. And, and this is a reality that I think is helpful for us to consider. How does the scripture tell us to deal with these things? Well, I think oftentimes this category of lament is one that the church is sometimes uncomfortable with. We're, we're pretty good at praise and thanksgiving, at least I, I think we are. At least if you consider the songs we sing, they tend to outnumber 
the laments that we sing when we consider thanksgiving, perhaps lament is something that makes us a bit uncomfortable, at least to do so together corporately, to question God, to express frustration to the Lord. And yet in the history of Christianity, it's something that we see quite frequently. In fact, our own hymnal, the Psalter itself, has over 50 laments in it. Over a third of the hymnal that God himself has given us is lament. That should tell us a little bit about our expectations of life, shouldn't it? It's a real feeling. Well, I want to consider one of these laments this morning, Psalm 13. And if you have your scripture, I would encourage you to open it. We're going to walk through it pretty much verse by verse today. And I want to see three things. And, and these three things are the common elements of a biblical lament. Psalm 13, many scholars have said, is the model lament in the Old Testament. And the three things that we see are complaint, a call, and a consolation. And we'll unpack those one by one. But first, this morning, I want to consider the complaint. Well, as we open to Psalm 13, one of the things that's strikingly missing is any information about David's situation. You know, a lot of the Psalms that we have do tell us a little bit about what's going on. They give us some background. But here we have absolutely nothing. What does seem clear is that Though there are relational components to David's struggle, though there are psychological components, if we look at the psalm, his issue is primarily spiritual. It's primarily theological. That is to say, his problem is with God. And we see this right from the beginning, don't we? How long, O Lord, will you forget me? Will you forget me forever? Off the bat, this is interesting because David here calls on the covenant name of God, Yahweh. It's printed in our English translations as Lord in small caps. Well, what's important about this is that this is the name that God has given his chosen people to use in worship. The one that they are to use to invoke him. It's unique for the people of of Israel. And, and in addition to using this covenant name, Yahweh, or Lord, David calls God out on his covenant promises. What, what would that be? Well, to not forget. To not forget his people. We find this promise of Yahweh throughout the scriptures, don't we? I mean, the, the prophets speak of it a lot. Isaiah, Jeremiah, as examples, calling on God not to forget. But in a way, God's remembering and his promise to remember encapsulates the whole of redemption, doesn't it? That God will be a God to us and to our children. That he will not forget us. That he will not leave us alone. That he will draw near to us. We find this promise of the Lord not to forget his people in many locations throughout Scripture, this promise is given to us in the early pages of Scripture and is repeated in the final pages of Revelation. He will be a God to us. And yet, here David is saying, how long will you forget me? 
How long will you hide from me? Well, in a way, David the psalmist here is acting like a prophet. Now, when we think of the word prophet, oftentimes we think of one who, who tells the future, perhaps, or who reveals something unique about God. But if we look through the Old Testament, one of the primary roles of the prophet was to bring covenant lawsuit against God's people. What, what, what does that mean? Well, in a way, they act like prosecuting attorneys. You know, in our legal system, a prosecutor would bring charges against someone, showing the individual or a group of people and the court that certain laws have been broken. Or perhaps one party will file a suit against another party for some sort of contractual violation. You know, we, we had an agreement and you did not hold up your side of the bargain. And we see this in... in, in in, in courts uh, uh, all the time. Well, well, in a similar way, God, through the prophets, would come to his people Israel, reminding them of their duties, their covenant duties, reminding them of their side of the agreement, and then showing them that they were constantly in breach of contract. Don't we see that often in the prophets? This is what God has called you to do, and yet this is how you're acting and this is what's going to happen because of it. It's interesting that the people forgetting God is often at the root of this, isn't it? Isaiah says, you have forgotten the Lord your God, the God of your salvation. Another prophet, Hosea says, Israel has forgotten his maker. Ezekiel says, you make gain of your neighbors by extortion. But me you have forgotten, declares the Lord. But here David isn't bringing charges against the people, is he? He's bringing charges against God. David is calling God out for not keeping up his side of the agreement. He's calling God out on the promises that God himself has made. How, how long will you forget me? You have made promises with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You've made covenant with Moses. You've made covenant with me, David, the king. Why are you not abiding by the agreement? And the intensity of the accusation seemed to increase every time David uses this phrase, how long? As if he is walking up the steps of the throne room of God, yelling at the king. His voice growing more intense, accusing God first of this passive forgetfulness. But then he steps it up, doesn't he? He says, he accuses God of actively hiding. How long, O Lord, will you hide your face from me? He blames God for the perpetual sorrow in his heart. And he says the root of it is God's neglect. Finally, accusing God of going back on his promise to protect David from his enemies. David brings a host of charges against his creator saying, you've neglected to be who you've promised to be. Not only have you abandoned me, but you've turned me over to my enemies. And this is no small thing, is it? David bringing charges of neglect and abandonment 
against the God of the universe. How does that sit with you? Are we, are we comfortable with that kind of dialogue with God? Well, if it makes you uncomfortable, it, it gets worse. If first we have this complaint, second we have a call. And the second stanza of the poem, the psalmist prayer, parallels the structure of the first. And you begin to see some repeating themes. But instead of the psalmist questioning God's covenant promises... Now David starts calling out demands. And he demands with three striking imperative forms. That is, he is telling God what to do, so to speak. And he uses these three imperatives. Look, or consider, answer, and enlighten. David calls the Lord to action in a way that mirrors the content of the complaint. Let's let's consider it for a moment. First, David has accused God of forgetting, right? And now he calls upon God to cease from forgetfulness, to consider him, to look upon him, to forget him no more. Second, in opposition to God hiding his face, now David calls him to answer. If you'll allow the language, David is calling on God to repent, (laughs) to to change his ways, to to turn toward his servant, to turn from neglect, to turn from forgetfulness. But there's something striking here that I think is really important to notice. That David again here uses this covenant name of God, and this time he uses it in its full form. What what do I mean by this? Well, throughout Scripture, God addresses his covenant people, and he identifies himself. We heard it this morning in the reading of the law. How does it begin in Exodus 20? He says, I am the Lord your God. This is the full version of his covenant name. I am the Lord your God, and he tells them what he has done. I have brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. He identifies who he is. And this name is closely connected with what he has done in history. Well, David uses this name again. He says, consider and answer me. Who? O Lord, my God. David is not barking orders at an unknown God, is he? But the God of Abraham. The God of Isaac. The God of of Jacob, the God who took Israel by the hand and led them out of bondage, who led them out from the yoke of slavery, the covenant God who put his name upon his people. This is the God of David and his fathers. And I think this is really important for us to see. It's easy to get caught up in the complaint and the call and and be almost offended by it. But I think it's important to see that in David's anger and in his frustration and in his loneliness, we don't find here a cry of disbelief, do we? We find a cry of faith. That God, the God he knows to be faithful, his God would be faithful to his promises. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. I want to just consider 
this for, for a moment. God is not scared of your frustration. God is not scared of your anger. He's not put off by your difficulties. He's, he, he's, he's not even, he doesn't even seem to be put off when your anger is directed towards him. And that's a little uncomfortable for us, perhaps. But the key here is that for those who call upon him in faith, even strained faith, even small faith, God gives us permission to call on him in frustration. Not only permission, but the very words to use. If you're angry, here's a good prayer for you to pray. God gives it to us. When life is difficult, when, when it seems that God is far away, with boldness, we can cry out, answer me, O Lord my God. David calls upon God to turn him from introspection, to turn him from the sorrow that is in his heart, and to enlighten his eyes, to revive him that he might not die in sorrow. And again, we see another one of these parallels. The first stanza speaks of David's enemies exalting over him. And now David repeats this theme in his petition to God. Consider me, answer me, enlighten me, that my enemies will not overcome me. Or else they will rejoice when I am shaken. David's sorrow here, we see, certainly has a social component. There's some enemies he is concerned about. There's a situational component here. We, we don't know what the situation is, but we can tell there's some things going on in his life. His trouble has a psychological component, doesn't it? He's, he's sorrowful in his heart. He's driven to introspection. He's turned inward upon himself. But but David here sees that his issue is not primarily social. His issue here is not primarily situational or psychological. He sees that his issue is primarily theological. David has a problem with God. And because David's primary problem is with God, David knows that God is the only source of consolation. I think perhaps for all of us, we, as we go through difficult times, we think of our laments, we think of our troubles, are, are, are rooted in our situations. And, and, and oftentimes we go through very difficult situations, don't we? Life is, is hard. Sickness, sorrow, death, financial problems, job problems, family problems, kid problems, parent problems. The list goes on and on and on. But in those difficult situations, God is our only source of consolation. The situation changing will not ultimately give us the consolation we need because it will change again, won't it? Another trouble is coming. 
The world keeps moving and turning and shifting around us, and the only solid answers are from one that does not move. Seasons of want and seasons of plenty will come, but God is the strength of our heart and the portion and our portion forevermore, as the psalmist says elsewhere. David gets this. And he directs his complaint and call directly to God. And he does so very, very directly, pointing the finger at God, describing the ways in which God seems to be unfaithful. And then David starts barking orders, it seems like, doesn't he? Relent from your neglect, O God. Repent, turn towards me. Well, at first we see David's call. Well, first we see his, his complaint, and then we see his call. Finally, we see consolation. But I have trusted in your steadfast love, the psalmist writes. My heart will rejoice in what? Your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And just like that, with a single conjunction, but everything is okay. Everything goes back to normal. All of a sudden, David's life is squared away. It's all taken care of. I guess all of the yelling and demanding worked, and uh, he wants to sing now. Well, I think if you're like me, one of the more troubling things about this passage is not how bold David is, but that everything gets fixed so quickly. I mean, and, and a, there's a certain light that we, we like this, right? It's like a good sitcom. Everything gets taken care of in 25 minutes. But one of the things that makes sitcoms so unlike real life is situations just don't resolve that quickly, do they? I mean, one minute David is dying in sorrow. Look at the language. Yelling at God. And the next he's ready to join a chorus line. That's a fast turnaround. And that's just not what life is like. Hurt lingers. Pain goes on and on and on. Shakespeare once wrote that one pain is only lessened by another's anguish. That is to say that sometimes it seems like the remedy for our current pain is that a greater pain would come. And doesn't life sometimes feel that way? Yesterday, all my troubles seem so far away. But now it looks as though they're here to stay. But not for David. All of a sudden, everything goes back to normal. Life is sweet there is much rejoicing. But does David's situation really change? Is there any indication in front of us from Psalm 13 that his situation, that his circumstances have shifted? Is there any indication that David's troubles have really ended? If they have, the psalm doesn't mention it. What we do know that is in this short lament, 
It is David who does the changing. So what what changes? Let's consider verse 5 and 6 as we conclude. But I have trusted, David says, in your steadfast love. This word steadfast love, or perhaps translated as loving kindness, is a word that's used throughout the Old Testament to speak of God's covenant faithfulness. Speaking of God as one who is faithful to his promise. Some commentators suggest that the best translation for this is that I have trusted in your covenant loyalty. David says emphatically, despite the fact that his situation probably actually hasn't changed at all, I have trusted or I I feel confident in your faithfulness. in, In your loyalty to your promises, to your covenant. My heart, David says, shall rejoice. And what? Your salvation. I would argue that David's immediate situation probably has not changed. And perhaps that's even more disappointing for us. Isn't that what we want? (laughs) A shift in circumstances. That finally the season of stress would just end. We frequently in our home use the phrase, man, when, when life just isn't so busy... We've been using it for years, and I would imagine we'll keep saying it. Situations just keep coming up, don't they? And I think that is the case with David. I don't think what is troubling him from the outside has actually been corrected. And whether these situations are completely from the outside, although that's rare, isn't it? Usually it's of our own doing. Situations often don't rectify quickly, but God comes to David with a true solution. Not one of changing a temporal situation, but but a true solution. Again, we have seen from verse 1 that David's issue is with God. It is theological, and God hears David. God inclines himself to his son, and God has mercy upon him. And in David's call for God to repent, God repents David. He turns David. He turns his son from his situation to to gaze upon God's salvation. We see that the psalmist, by God's mercy, is able to look to a grace that he has encountered. And the magnitude of that grace, the magnitude of that salvation is a reality that no other experience can diminish. In a word, as one hymnist wrote, the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And though in that moment the silence of God might seem deafening, David looks to a reality that breaks through silence with a song of salvation. One of the big days that we as a church and the church throughout history have celebrated is is Easter. Rightly so, we have a a feast and we we, we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord, and, and rightly so. 
Well, many churches throughout history have celebrated the entire week. We, we also gather on Good Friday to consider and reflect on the death of, of our Lord. And for some traditions, I, I grew up celebrating Monday, Thursday, where we would, where we would come together and, and, cont- and, and, and reflect on the events of, of Holy Week. But one of the holidays that doesn't get a whole lot of press, in the Reformed tradition at least, is Holy Saturday. Uh, perhaps you're familiar with this, where churches throughout the ages have celebrated the Easter Vigil. And it's an interesting thing to commemorate because the Easter Vigil is a lengthy service that commemorates the silence of God. Seems like an odd thing to celebrate. The day that our Lord spent in the grave. I mean, you can think of the first Holy Saturday, right? Where Jesus' followers truly experience the silence of God. A day that they have to reckon with the fact that Jesus apparently isn't who he said he was. I mean, the disciples were all in at that point, weren't they? And now the revolution had truly ended. Death had defeated God, and the light of the world had been snuffed out. Why would we celebrate such a day? Well, we can celebrate such a day because we know Sunday is coming. We know that Easter is around the corner. We know that with the dawn of Sunday, we we begin to reflect on the resurrection of Christ. We can rejoice in the necessary death and the temporary silence of Christ because we know that death will not and does not have the last word about our Savior. Well, in the same way, on this side of God's salvation in our lives, we can lament. We can call out to God in sorrow and faith, bringing our complaints, bringing our troubles, our pains, even our anger. Because we know that our pain does not have the last word about who we are. The last word about who we are is found in Christ Jesus himself and our lives resurrected in his. We, like David, can look beyond our current struggles, our current pain and anger to a grace, to a salvation, to God's covenant loyalty shown to us in the giving of his son that we might have forgiveness, that we might have life. And as we reflect on that reality, even in the midst of our difficulties, we can and we should recall as we look at Psalm 13 that truly this psalm is Christological, which is just a fancy way of saying that this is, this is Jesus' song. Jesus is the only one who could truly sing this song. Right? He is the one who experienced God's turned away face. He is the one who was forsaken by the Father. He was the one who was handed over to his enemies and ultimately defeated by them. That we might never have to sing this song in fullness. (laughs) That we might never have to experience the turned away face of God. I know that there are those here 
this day who feel like they're weak or month or year or perhaps entire lifetime feels like a perpetual Holy Saturday where God seems silent. Where Psalm 13 and perhaps only the first four verses is your your theme song. And if that is you this day, hear this. Your pain does not have the last word about who you are. Because Sunday is coming. That you are not alone in your suffering. Because you are united to Christ in it. But also united to him in his resurrection. Sunday is coming. Resurrection is coming. And in difficulty, the psalmist calls us to look to that reality. To a salvation that eclipses the difficulties of this life. Though weeping may last for the night, a shout of joy comes in the morning. And after we have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called us to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore us, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. And he will wipe away every tear. And it is assured because Jesus is alive. And because he is alive, our lives are hidden in him. And we too can sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with us. Amen? Let's pray together.